0: Hello and welcome to China and Africa, Historical Perspectives on a Rising Power, brought to you by the History Department, the Clio Society, the College of Arts and Sciences at the Ohio State University, by the Bexley Public Library, and the Ohio State University East Asian Study Center, which is supported by a U.S. Department of Education, Title VI grant. My name is Nick Breafogel, and I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching and I'll be your host and moderator today. Thank you so much for joining us. China has expanded its global presence over the last decade, much to the concern of US officials. Africa is a major recipient of this new influence, building on Cold War relationships first forged during an earlier era of Sino-American competition. Today, we will look at Chinese engagement in Africa over the last 50 years, to examine how its increased power has transformed Beijing's foreign policies and strained its global relationships. With that introduction, let me lay out the plan. Our two panelists will speak for a few minutes each on questions uh, regarding the uh, the China-Africa relationship historically, and I'll introduce them before they speak. Then we'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen at any time. We receive several questions in advance and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can during the, uh, the hour that we have together. Let's begin with Patrick Nash, uh, who will talk to us today about the China-Africa relationship from the Chinese vantage. Patrick is currently a doctoral student in the history department at The Ohio State University where he studies modern Chinese history having earned his MA in history from SUNY Buffalo in 2018. His research interests include the history of PRC, foreign relations, and Chinese media coverage of international affairs. And with that, let me pass uh, pass the microphone over to Patrick. Thank you so very much.
1: All right, thank you for that introduction. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here, so give me one second while I technology here. Let's see. Okay. All right. So thank you again um, for for inviting me. Um, so I think because one of the points we're trying to drive home uh, in this talk is that although the Sino-African relationship has or China's relationship with African countries has been getting a lot of play in the Western media over the last you know uh, decade or so. Um, you know, it's, it China's relationship with African nations, it's not a recent phenomenon only. So to underscore this point, what I'm, what I'm trying to do here uh, in my section of this talk is to give a very, very brief summary of the development of PRC foreign policy more generally, which will then allow us to, to build um, off of that and put uh, China's relationships with uh, African nations into historical context. Um, So in the autumn of 1949, the Chinese Communist Party uh, defeated its Nationalist Party rivals and established the People's Republic of China on the mainland. The Nationalist Party government moved its capital to the island of Taiwan, where it competed with the PRC, uh, the People's Republic of China, for international recognition and domestic legitimacy. The civil war that effectively ended with the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949 came on the heels of the collapse of Japan's Asian empire, which had included large sections of mainland China and Taiwan, as well as other areas of Southeast and East Asia. Prior to Japan's 20th century invasion of China, however, China had also been the target of Western imperialist ambitions in the twilight years of the Qing dynasty, beginning in the 19th century. So China's history as a victim of first of Western treaty port imperialism and then of Japanese imperialism over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries informed the policy platforms um, of both rival Chinese governments after 1949, both the Communist Party government in Beijing and the Nationalist Party government in Taiwan. They both uh, claimed to be heirs of this like, to support staunchly anti-imperialist Uh, foreign policy. But for the the purposes of this talk, we're going to restrict our our conversation to the policies um, and the policy rhetoric coming out of Beijing. So after taking power on the mainland, the Chinese Communist Party hitched its uh, domestic legitimacy to the narrative that the Chinese Communist Party had a stronger track record against defending China's sovereignty or had a stronger track record of defending China's sovereignty against a third of foreign imperialism, most recently, uh, uh, Japanese imperialism. Um, the significance of this for us today is that eventually the PRC was able to use the shared experience of colonization and suffering at the hands of foreign imperialism to claim an affinity with the newly independent and developing nations in the global south of the course of the late 50s and during the 60s and 70s. So although anti-imperialism remained a key rhetorical feature of PRC foreign policy from its inception through the 1970s and really into today, we can still see um, the Im- Im- impact of this anti-imperialist uh, uh, Legacy. Um, it would be really oversimplifying things to suggest that the PRC's attitude and actual policies towards um, foreign policies and policies towards decolonizing nations uh, in general, or more specifically, was, was static, right? Like most governments, um, specific policy decisions were contingent on domestic political priorities, economic conditions, intra party conflicts, um, as well as the international environment. So consequently they changed over time and, and, and what was true in 1950 or 1952 wasn't necessarily true in 1963 right that seems simple but i feel like i should just say it um but so specifically for here uh, this talk we're gonna i'm gonna look at uh, two specific ways in which the inter- international environment helped to shape china's relationship with african countries in particular um, in the 60s in, in the 60s um but the two specific uh, conflicts that I'm going to talk about are really uh, their origins are before that. So, first is the, the Cold War, and then the second, the second um, conflict is the Sino Soviet split. So, the Cold War, understood as a conflict between US, like a US block of uh, capitalist states versus a communist block of, uh, uh, or a, a Soviet block of communist states, uh, shaped China's, uh, the People's Republic of China, the PRC's foreign policy. Right. The PRC was a revolutionary communist state. Um, it entered into alliance with the USSR in February of 1950 with the signing of the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance. During the period of Sino-Soviet alliance, the Cold War, Cold War dynamics were among some of the most important factors shaping PRC foreign policy, not exclusively, but among some of the most uh, important factors shaping PRC foreign policy. The PRC received a substantial amount of aid from the USSR uh, for industrial and military development, and they also cooperated on messaging. Uh, During the 50s, they especially cooperated on messaging surrounding world peace and anti-imperialism. This accelerated over the course of the Korean War when PRC forces engaged with uh, UN forces led by the United States on the peninsula. Because China's seat at the UN was still held by the Nationalist Party government in Taiwan, Uh, The Soviet Union was portrayed in PRC domestic media as a sincere ally on the the inside of an unfriendly organization, the United Nations. Um, This observation leads to one of the major ways in which the Cold War, as a conflict between the United States and the USSR, helped to shape uh, PRC foreign policy decisions. The PRC was engaged in a struggle for international recognition. Because the United States identified the communist government in Beijing as an ideological enemy, the United States did everything it could to refuse engaging with that government. Um, It it refused to recognize the People's Republic of China and protected the rival Nationalist Party government in Taipei. This refusal of of the United States to recognize the Chinese government in Beijing um, and the exclusion of the PRC from China's seat on the Security Council are mentioned here only because these decisions affected how and where the PRC went to seek allies. The PRC had to look for ways to undermine what they viewed as a US dominated and later as a European dominated world order. In this way, the UN seat in the Security Council became increasingly symbolic of this search for in- influence. Beijing needed to win allies and isolate Taipei to increase the legitimacy of its government. So, At the end of the 1950s, when the Sino-Soviet relationships began to sour and a myriad of new African nations began to emerge, the PRC's engagement on the African continent began to increase. This brings me to the second conflict I want to talk about that shaped PRC policy in Africa, and that's the Sino-Soviet split. So, As mentioned, the PRC and USSR formed an alliance in 1950, um, and although the alliance seemed uh, natural based on political ideology, was not without tension. The PRC's path to communist revolution differed from that of the Soviet Union. And so, as relations between the two nations soured, the PRC positioned itself as being at the vanguard of an anti-imperialist revolution internationally. It claimed that its agrarian peasant-based revolution and guerrilla warfare tactics were more applicable to the underdeveloped Global South than was the USSR's experience. The PRC government reframed the USSR as a reactionary European imperialist power and positioned itself as at the head of a global revolutionary movement. The relationship between the PRC and the Soviet Union uh, fractured in the 1960s, after which the PRC started competing more directly with the Soviet Union than it was with the United States, especially in the Global South, where the PRC positioned itself as an inspiration and model for revolutionary anti-imperialist movements. Essentially, what happened after the Sino-Soviet split was that each of the PRC and the USSR offered different models of revolution um, and development to the newly independent African nations. While the USSR emphasized economic revolution, the PRC emphasized its anti-imperialist revolutionary experience. And so the PRC's challenge to the USSR prompted both states to become more involved in the third world movement and newly African nations became the centerpiece of PRC-USSR competition for allies and influence. So with that, I'm going to end my brief summary of of Chinese foreign policy more generally and throw it back to Professor Parrott, who will discuss in more detail how um, the PRC engaged with potential new allies on the uh, African continent. So I'm just gonna stop sharing my screen here in a second and thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Patrick. Um, that's great. Uh, we're gonna pass, uh, as Patrick just said, we'll pass uh, pass the floor over now to Joe Parrott. Uh, and uh, uh, just as a kind of by way of just a brief introduction uh, to him, our uh, Joseph Parrott is assistant professor uh, of US foreign relations and transnational history uh, at The Ohio State University. Uh, he's interested in the intersection of the Cold War, decolonization, and international policy. He's currently completing a book on the global solidarity movement supporting Portuguese African liberation movements in the 1960s and 1970s. He's the co editor of the forthcoming volume, The Tricontinental Revolution Third World Radicalism in the Cold War. And his publications have appeared in uh, journals such as Modern American History and Race and Class, and in such popular venues as the Washington Post. Joe, over
2: to you. There we go, I can unmute myself, I know how to do this now. <laughs> all right, so let me share my screen uh, as well real quick. Let's get this PowerPoint um, going again and we'll just go ahead and, and pick it up right there. Um, so yeah, thank you all for for coming out and, and thank you, Patrick, for kind of setting the scene there. And So what we're seeing is that China first gets involved in Africa as part of this larger Cold War competition, both with the United States and with the the USSR. And after Ghana received its independence in 1957, what we see is decolonization really sweep through the continent over the next two decades. And In 1960 alone, there were 17 countries in Africa that received their independence. And this wasn't an inevitable process, but Africans were really pushing for independence. This was leading to conflict, um, both diplomatic with former colonial um, kind of rulers and also with local populations in places like South Africa and Rhodesia, modern day Zimbabwe. And so Africa is really becoming the, the center of revolution and anti imperialism in places like Algeria, in Angola, in South Africa, alongside the kind of peaceable decolonization that's happening in places like Kenya and Ghana. And these new countries, as well as these liberation movements, they're looking uh, abroad for assistance. And they need both economic help to, to rebuild their infrastructure, to rebuild their nations, to kind of set up these independent uh, independent nations. And these liberation movements need arms and support to kind of wage their revolutions uh, against South Africans and Rhodesians and, and uh, empires that are slow to, to devolve, like the, the Portuguese empire, um, which is what I study. And in this context, China, because of the the anti-imperial politics that Patrick was talking about, becomes this very natural partner for uh, a lot of these countries to engage with and to adopt because it's anti-imperial. It has this uh, history. China has this history of colonization. It's socialist, which involves the government kind of intervening to help build up this economy in a way that rapidly catches it up to the rest of the world and because China is also heavily agrarian, as are a lot of these African societies. And during this period, Mao is, is pushing the great leap forward in this economic restructuring of society with this push for mechanized agriculture, for, for industrialization. It's extremely disruptive in China, But and, and it produces starvation. But a lot of countries see this as, as the, the, the type of rapid advancement they want. They might not be adopting the same model. They don't like exactly what happens in the Chinese example. But that goal of rapidly modernizing the state is exactly what a lot of these African um, leaders are trying to look for. And so they're looking to China as for inspiration, sometimes in partnership. And they're building these relationships with China as it's kind of going out on the world stage. And a lot of the closeness with China comes not just because there are these overlapping interests, but because they speak the same language much more than the US or the USSR. But this wasn't inevitable necessarily both the us and the ussr are kind of um, original sources of appeal for a, a lot of these countries the us is extremely wealthy the ussr are comparatively wealthy compared to china of course these african states and these countries are competing with each other as well but one of the problems is when these countries reach out to countries like the united states to ask for aid in developing their infrastructure which is extremely important to these countries one of the things you have to remember is that these countries are looking to really break away from these traditional European ties. And these European ties are are really really problematic. Infrastructural ties, um, like communication, like shipping, these are all pointed towards the former empires, towards the United Kingdom, towards France. And these countries are trying to create new and independent economic and national identities away from these places. And this is actually still a problem today. I mean, it's easier to make a phone call, or it was easier to make a phone call for a long time from Nigeria to the UK than across the you know the 10 hour drive to, to Ghana. Um, it's still actually easier to import things from Japan to Nigeria than it is to import things from Senegal to Nigeria, just because of the way that kind of shipping is set up along some of these old kind of colonial routes that continue to inform the international economy. And so what we see here is a lot of these countries are trying to have big infrastructural projects to kind of break away with these traditions of empire and kind of create these new, um, post-colonial relationships, and they're looking to the United States and the USSR for support and and funding these big projects and providing expertise. But the problem is, especially when the U.S., which is, of course, the world's wealthiest nation, the source of a lot of aid, when it's looking at these projects, it's looking mostly at kind of economic feasibility, usefulness, the efficiency of the projects, um, and it's often focused on kind of limiting spending to the most um, specific things or to the most kind of worthwhile projects. And it does back a few major ones. The Volta Dam project in Ghana is one example, but it's rejecting a lot of these others that individual countries and groups of countries are offering because it's missing one, the psychological value of breaking with empire, but it's also downplaying a lot of these regional links. And the United States during this period doesn't actually have an interest in severing ties between its European allies and its former colonies. In fact, the United States repeatedly says in the 1960s and 1970s, that it thinks you know continued European tutelage will help kind of these economies develop in responsible ways. Um, and so this seems very um, condescending uh, for one thing from the African perspective, but also it misses the point of trying to break away from these empires and create their own independent economic and national identities. And so in this context, because the United States is being very careful about what it funds, because the USSR is is kind of focused on other regions of the world and doesn't have the same kind of um, wealth that the United States does to invest in these economies, Chinese aid becomes extremely attractive because these kind of two big players on the international stage aren't really interested in investing at the level that a lot of African leaders want. And so what we get is China becoming this kind of one that not only do they see the world in similar ways to a lot of these African leaders, but they're willing to get involved and fund these kind of big infrastructural projects that challenge these colonial ties. And the number one example of this is the Tazara or Tanzam Railway that links the landlocked copper rich region of Zambia to ports in neighboring Tanzania. And what this allowed Zambia to, to do was avoid depending on rail links through Portuguese Angola and through Rhodesia, which were both hostile um, to some of these independent nations and could occasionally kind of turn the screws on Zambia whenever it tried to speak out against empire and speak out against white minority rule in these regions. And the U.S. had rejected the Tazara Railway because of the costs, because they predicted small freight loads. And the United States instead said we'd invest in a road. You know, the United States would invest in a road, but this isn't what the, these two countries wanted. And so China stepped in in the late 1960s, helping to burnish its kind of tarnished reputation after the Great Leap Forward and really invested heavily in this project. And so China spent over $400 million from 1970 to 1975 to build the longest rail line in Africa. And the workforce was about 20% Chinese, the other 80% was pulling on local African labor. And the Chinese lived alongside these local workers in similar conditions as part of this kind of sign of anti-imperial solidarity, right? We're in this together, we're using Chinese expertise a lot of these workers are a little bit you know, better trained in, in heavy industry and building railroads and things like this, but we're all living together in kind of the same pursuit here. And there were problems with this. Uh, it was a one track line, as you can kind of see in, in this image, there were a lot of breakdowns, but this became this really key trade route during the apartheid era that allowed Zambia a little bit more freedom of action when it's completely surrounded until 1976, and then again, well into the 1980s by hostile states like the Portuguese colonies, Rhodesia, and South Africa. And this really kind of explained this model uh, of Chinese aid during this period. Not only was it collaborative and cooperative, but involved building this big project and then handing it over to the African government. So the Chinese were essentially fully funding this or funding a large portion of this and then fully handing it over so these governments could profit from the creation and running of this railroad. And this was by far the biggest example of a Chinese project during this period and has become kind of famous in the region. But China actually spent more on aid in the first half of the 1970s than the USSR. So it was actually funding a number of smaller projects with this one being the kind of key one that everybody looked at. And from 1970 to 76, China was spending one point billion dollars on aid in 28 countries versus just one billion from the USSR. Um, in 20 countries. So China was a real large actor here. The United States is still spending a little bit more, spread out through a lot more countries, but China's having a real impact during this period. And the reality is this is costly to to China, right? Um, China has its own kind of um, reconstruction that's going on in its state, but Mao said that this was really important for the kind of Chinese self-image and for this larger anti-imperial project. And he supposedly told Tanzanian officials that China would build the rail for them rather than needed projects in its own country because this was a sign of friendship. This was a sign of China kind of taking this leadership role and committing itself to Africa. And this did pay real political dividends for China. Among other things, in 1971, the the PRC was voted in as the kind of China representative at the United Nations. They, They gained the security seat that had been preserved for Taiwan for decades. And they did this largely with the support of African nations and um, that they had helped kind of fund through this period. So this was a real political coup for China. At the same time, it's kind of going out there and offering this economic aid. Um, But of course there were problems, right? And this limited funds was a key thing. And as China started achieving some of its policy goals, getting voted into the UN among other things, when the United States finally recognized China, when it started kind of feeling its way out into the world, as this world power, you actually saw a shift in the way that relationships existed between the US and China. All of a sudden, this kind of African diplomacy, these sacrifices to to kind of win over African nations weren't quite as important because China had a little bit more independence, had a little bit more of its own power that it could work with on the international stage. And so you see China kind of drifting away from Africa in the 1970s and the 1980s Um, as it's kind of being able to operate on on its own, right, and and start kind of investing more in its economy and kind of gaining power as a kind of big superpower on its own level. But one of the things we see here is there's always this kind of ongoing relationship with China, and we'll get to this image that's up here in a minute, but this China begins kind of going back to Africa in the, the 1990s but it's now doing so as this real economic power, as this emerging superpower. And one of the reasons we get China interested in Africa is not only because now it can kind of move its weight around a little bit more, but because after Tiananmen Square, especially, China found some of its connections, newly formed connections to the West, really strained over this issues of human rights. And so as trying uh, trying to kind of remake itself on the international stage, it once again looks to Africa and adopt some of these kind of anti-imperial politics that had quieted down just a little bit in the 1980s. And so what relationships with Africa offered it to do was, it was a chance to push back against, quote, the unjust and inequitable world order that, that China was saying kind of affected both Africans and China. And so we're going to create bonds that really address the interests and the needs of Chinese and Africans we're going to create economic benefits and alliances that that will help both countries out. And we're not going to get bogged down in some of these these extra concerns that that the international community has, like human rights. So we're finding ways to build alliances that, that mutually benefit these countries without getting bogged down in human rights, without getting bogged down in the kind of rising concern about the environment and pollution and things like this. And so this change in emphasis in the 90s also goes to to what these relationships actually look like, because this emphasis on mutual benefit really changes that model that existed in the 1970s. And China's now prioritizing, among other things, the opening of new markets that it can then sell and, and kind of buy goods from, but also this extraction of natural resources from the African continent to help fuel the rising industrial base that exists in China in the 1990s and going into the 2000s. And so there are nods to African concerns, there's promoting a small industry, there's a a little bit about creating local jobs, but a lot of these benefits increasingly are are kind of flowing towards China. And we see a different change to what that investment looks like too. There's a lot more mix of China getting more and more involved in these projects, not building them and handing them over like they did before. And we also see a little bit more of long-term investment and long-term involvement by China. And this change occurred as China said that African states had not properly managed some of these older projects. The Tazara Railway is kind of famously difficult to ride on now, there are a lot of disruptions. You can't always rely on getting one place to the next according to the schedule. And China used this as an example to say, hey, you know, China needs to have a, a more active hand. Um, our country knows what it's doing, it knows how to build infrastructure. And so, so we're not just gonna hand this over, we're gonna stick around a little bit longer. And as a result, we see that China that China's becoming a, a lot more involved here. And among other things, rather than kind of giving this aid and handing these projects over, you see China coming in with low interest loans um, that are often supported by a greater import of Chinese expertise. And African states are a little bit wary of this, but it still is really important aid There's a nod to education that's going along with this training local African workers and there's of course attention to jobs and things like that so even though it's not quite the relationship that it was in the past a lot of African governments still see this as as um, a benefit to them in the 1990s and early 2000s but but the the change in relationship is really important and and we see things starting to the new model isn't necessarily the tazara railway Rather, we get things like special economic zones and what's called the port park city model, which is connecting uh, these special areas where China invests uh, a lot of money in kind of the creation of small industries. These industries often have relationships to nearby cities where they both get kind of um, their labor from creation of small rail networks that bring in the labor. They also tend to get a lot of perks, including tax breaks, including preferred access to electricity, including lowered costs for electricity. And then the final part of this is connecting it to a port. So this is a very kind of export-oriented economic model that China's using. It's kind of copying from its own system, but it's making sure that that it's creating in these African states. And not not a ton, there are a couple, but if you can actually look at this map here, you see Addis Ababa to Djibouti has a kind of connection here, right? And one of the things that we see is we see this port park city model being set up in Ethiopia And these goods are being exported through the port of Djibouti, which is actually controlled by a Chinese company. So we see much more of a role for China here. And what this actually is, is part of what's come to become known as the the Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI, um, which sounds kind of innocuous, but is about this kind of recreating of the international system and, and the international infrastructure. With China kind of at the center, so we have these exports, we have this infrastructure focusing on creating these new production areas, exporting them through Chinese-controlled ports, and linking them all kind of around Beijing. And Beijing is going to be the connector between places like Africa and um, Europe. And what this is is part of China kind of recreating the international system uh, around some of its interests. And um, you know, the Chinese government has talked in the last decade about these five connections, right? So infrastructure, free trade, finance, policy coordination and people to people exchanges all kind of centered around Beijing. And this is what a lot of this model is about with China providing the loans to build this infrastructure and providing the direction to kind of tie this to broader Chinese initiatives, both in Africa and in Asia and in certain parts of Southern Europe. And so this does still offer benefits for for African governments but you can see that there's kind of a a, there's some tensions that are rising with this and I'll try to wrap it up in in the next couple minutes here because I know I'm, I'm running a little bit long but for the most part a lot of African governments have welcomed this even though there's increased Chinese control even though they're not quite as many jobs as some of them would like there have been real benefits and places like Ethiopia have created for instance Um, shoe manufacturing industries that they're then exporting to the West and exporting to Europe and the United States. And so this is actually benefiting them even if they're exporting some of this through Chinese controlled ports and even if they're having to give up some of their tax revenue um, in order to do it. But we see some kind of tensions uh, arising because as valuable as this Chinese alternative is to the US and the existing market, um, there are some real tensions here. And there's an increasing anxiety about the threat of debt, because you know this Chinese debt is very real. These are loans that are expected to be paid back, and this gives China a lot of kind of political power and economic power over some of these countries. And there's increasingly local objections to the amount of Chinese expertise that's sent over here, the immigration that that's causing, and and questions about how effective this actually is in creating local jobs. And so Zambia actually provides um, an interesting example. We can look at Zambia and see just how much Chinese investment here. Of course, this is one of their oldest allies. This is you know, the kind of core of the Tanzan Railway, right? And one of the things that, that when I actually studied in Zambia that you could see is that when you actually look at a lot of these Chinese projects and there are a number of buildings going up through the capital of Lusaka over the last decade that are built and planned um, by Chinese architects and Chinese industries and Chinese businesses, you can see that that differentiation of what the jobs are. A lot of the highest level jobs are related to Chinese imported kind of labor. You know, the experts are Chinese. A lot of the people working, you know, planting shrubs, for instance, when I actually saw it were African. And so there's a real tension about this. There's, there seems to be a, a real kind of difference between the jobs and the quality of jobs that are being created and who's getting them with, with educated Chinese being kind of imported or, or migrating over to fill a lot of these, and this is creating a tension. There's also a real concern with the Chinese ownerships of companies and infrastructure. And what we've seen is Chinese companies take over a lot of the, the kind of local big corporations that exist in Zambia because they have the money to do it, they see it as investment, but there's a sense that the Zambians are kind of losing local control of this. And there've been tensions created, especially when a number of um, Chinese investors took over a local communications company and then said a number of kind of disparaging things about Zambians and the Zambian government. And the biggest example was actually the the Chinese were important with loans um, in building the new airport in Lusaka. And after there was a fear that that the government might default on some of this debt, there there were rumors running around Lusaka that the Chinese were actually going to take over and run the airport. And this produced a lot of consternation, a lot of anger. It wasn't true at the time. The Chinese were not going to do that. But but just the fact that these rumors were were being created and were getting reported in the news and were inciting people to kind of complain to the government about this was a big deal. What we actually see is the current president of Zambia, his early political positions were extremely anti-Chinese. And he lost his his first kind of runs for presidential power. And and he kind of moderated a little bit when he came back. But the reality is that we have a politician running Zambia whose early career was built on kind of resisting this expansion Of Chinese influence, which he's called imperial, which he's called bullying, which he says is essentially making problem in Zambia. And this is disseminating down to the kind of local level. And if you go and you look at the the newspapers that you can read from Lusaka that are online and look at some of the comments sections, you can not only see that there's regular reporting on actual attacks on Chinese business owners in Lusaka, especially as they kind of move down into the kind of local corner store area, there's been real interpersonal tensions. But you also see a lot of commentary recently when we were talking about the pandemic, um, about what was popularly called in Zambia the Wuhan flu, because there is this kind of anti-Chinese sentiment going around, and so that that anti-Chinese description of the the coronavirus pandemic was called the Wuhan flu there because of the real tensions that exist. And so one of the things that we're seeing is, despite the fact they have this long alliance on being anti-imperial on China, kind of investing in Zambia. To help them break their ties with their former kind of colonial rulers in the United Kingdom, break their ties even with dependence on the United States. We're seeing this real anti-imperial politics developing in certain areas of Africa because it seems like China has essentially come in and kind of replaced these former colonial masters and are and are doing similar things, even if they're they're having better rhetoric or even if they're they're doing a better job on the political stage at kind of playing this off as mutual cooperation. But you, you see these real disconnect. Between what China traditionally did, what they still say they're doing, and trying to reform the international system, and the reception that it's having in certain places of the African continent. So with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up. And I think Patrick and I will be happy to to answer any questions you might have.
0: Marvelous. Thanks so much, Joe. Uh, And We've had a, a bunch of questions come in. Um, if you would like to, uh, if you have anything you'd like to ask, uh, Patrick and Joe, please uh, feel free to type it into uh, into the Q and A, and we'll we'll work our way through uh, through the questions we get. Um, I guess the, the first question uh, that I'll send to send Patrick's way just to start uh, this is sort of a question, I guess, about a broader kind of Chinese uh, Chinese foreign policy in this regard. Um, which is, uh, you know, are other continents, other countries, uh, other parts of the planet receiving similar type of attention to what we're seeing in the in the African case? Uh, and uh, if not, I mean, if 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 they're not receiving, if other parts of the world are not receiving this uh, the same kind of attention, then why Africa? Uh, but so just trying to get a sense of putting this uh, this this China this Sino African relationship into the larger context of uh, kind of. Chinese activities abroad? Great, thanks. That's a, actually, that's a great question. So, I mean,
1: when I read contemporary, um, like the rhetoric coming out of Beijing, either, you know, uh, Xi Jinping's speeches or or um, state media, I mean, there does seem to be an Maybe the other region. So there are other regions. So it's a lot of times um, I'm thinking about Xi Jinping's like speech to the UN. Right. And he referred to over and over developing countries. Um, It's a it's a kind of like global South Africa, Africa, the African continent. A lot of African countries fit into this larger like global south. Um, Larger global south push. Right. Like we have a, a We're not gonna impose our values on you the way that America will. We respect all different kinds of governments. And so some of the developing countries, some of the areas of the Global South that maybe haven't chosen to go a democratic route, China pushes with them too. The Middle East is is hot right now in Chinese media um, because of Afghanistan. Um, But Africa does seem to have, so when I watch the news, Africa seems to, there seems to be, so it might be actually bias on my part because I'm interested in it too, but it seems like they spend more time covering Africa than they do Latin America. Um, but, you know, regionally, there's a lot of, in Asia, like, so I, I see coverage of Asian issues, uh, like broader East Asian, Southeast Asian uh, issues, the Middle East and Africa as like some of the core, but, but it seems like the rhetoric is often f- developing countries, Um, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if I answered your question or if I successfully avoided it um, answering your question, but yeah, I don't know if uh, Professor Parrott has anything to add there.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in Um, and here, let me share the screen again. Can you see that? So, I mean, if we're looking at the Belt and Road Initiative, right? there is a lot going on in Africa, but you can also see there's a lot of development going down South Asia, right? So I think this is a real global push there. There's some attempts over here, if you can see my cursor to, to go into the Middle East as well. I mean, I think a lot of what what China's trying to do is, um, you know, touch on these areas, the developing world, the global south, as Patrick has said, um, that, that have been kind of ignored within some of this and kind of fill in some of those gaps, right? And I think one of the big reasons why Africa is kind of featured is for two reasons. One, I think when you move into Southeast Asia and you're dealing with that East Asian area, there's a lot of... Tensions with China that exist. And so I think there are fewer opportunities. Um, But number two, I I think Africa doesn't have that same kind of regional power that kind of fills that role, right? Latin America has not only the United States, but Brazil is a big actor. Um, Argentina has its moments, right? Where where they're all kind of saying, hey, you know, we need kind of regional leadership. But South Africa is probably the closest thing that Sub-Saharan Africa has. And it's a relatively weak state that, that still hasn't quite gotten its own house in order. And so China, I think, sees Africa as an opportunity to kind of develop this Belt and Road Initiative with slower pushback than, say, exists in parts of Southeast Asia, especially, where there's kind of a traditional kind of frustration or concern or you know um, whatever, with that kind of larger Chinese influence, um, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is global, right, and Africa is just kind of a featured aspect of it. Um,
0: let me send a question your way, Joe. Which kind of, which to, uh, to a degree you've answered, uh, but uh, we had a couple of questions about. Well, sort of two aspects of the same question. Uh, one is kind of which parts of Africa is China particularly targeting, and and we had some people point out, of course, that China is a country, Africa is a continent, so it's a bit of a bit a, of a, an imbalanced juxtaposition that we have even in the title here, but which parts of Africa is China specifically targeting, and, and kind of on top of that, why then uh, is, you know, we've talked about that there is some U.S. concern about these activities, why is there U.S. concern? Is it, is it, uh, is the concern focused particularly on the parts of Africa that China is interested in, or is it more a kind of concern
2: about China, Chinese expansion uh, of influence broadly? Yeah, so to some extent, from, from what I understand it, and, and I'm a little bit, you know, the, the present stuff, I'm a historian, so the present stuff's a little bit more sketchy for me. Um, but, but there seem to be different parts uh, of Africa where um, China's getting involved. Ethiopia ha- has been a very large one, um, parts of West Africa, uh, the Congo as well, and then that area kind of right around Zambia. And and two of the things that they've been looking for is, one, I, I think there has been this, this focus on resource extraction. I mean, China's moving in to some of these high-tech industries, which involves access to kind of rare earth minerals. And a lot of that happens in places like Zambia and the Congo. So there has been investment, very kind of pointed investment in these regions to, to try to get those resources out and going towards Chinese factories. The other opportunity has been places like Ethiopia, which has a relatively educated population that can be turned to kind of light industry and has some support for that. So there's been investment there where they've been able to find willing partners to kind of set up these models uh, of what light industry looks like and what the kind of alternative state-based interventionist kind of model that that China's selling to some of these countries could look like. And they're very much kind of set up as these model um, kind of investment opportunities. And I think those are the two big things that we're seeing extraction. And then that kind of model small industry thing that helps China um, kind of outsource some of the stuff as it moves um, somewhat uh, towards towards more high-end um, production. Uh, the thing that I would say about the United States is I think more than just a, a specific region, it's, it's about this kind of larger global Chinese push because China among other things is clearly trying to set up an alternative to what is the kind of American-European-dominated international system, and it's doing so not only with these increased loans, but but these new infrastructural paths, and also things like a potential alternative to the World Bank, right, which is still very much controlled by the U.S. There's been some flirtation with China and Brazil and Russia about setting up their kind of own alternative to the World Bank, sometimes called the Brick Bank. Um, But so I think that's really more what the United States is concerned about. It's not any one particular country being kind of peeled off because honestly, the United States sees Africa. It doesn't often see the individual crises or the individual plights of these nations, at least not as a kind of national discussion point. But I think it's more about this kind of bold push that China's been making in the last 20 years or so to really expand its presence in some of these areas where it's traditionally had a kind of lesser presence or had, had kind of lost interest after the 1970s.
0: Um, great, uh, Patrick, uh, a couple of well, a, a broad question and a, and, a, and, a, and a more focused question um, that I think are related. One uh, one of the people in the audience has asked, how do we characterize or how should we characterize uh, the interaction between kind of China and different African nations? Obviously, part of it comes out of a, of a of an anti-colonial, anti-imperial kind of background or rhetoric, but, is it, in fact, today some new kind of colonialism, new type of imperialism, some neo imperialism? I'm not sure what word we'd want to choose, but um, you know, is it a variant of this? Is it just simply uh, 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 a kind of consequence of, uh, of the capitalist system? Is it just a kind of capitalist type of uh, a relationship? Um, and kind of related to that, a, a sort of a more focused question. Uh, one of the people in the audience asks that it's there. It's um, his understanding that. Uh, that China strongly encourages African nations receiving aid to make Chinese required language in secondary schools. Uh, and is this true? That's kind of part of, uh, part of the process of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the relationship uh, in, in this new structure.
1: I'll answer the second question first because um, it's easier for me to answer. I don't know if, I don't know if that is true or not. I know that overall, the PRC is uh, china is pushing uh for chinese language study abroad just generally um you know uh through through partnerships or institutions like the confucius institute like promotion of chinese uh language and and and, and culture is is a, um is part of uh, uh china's current like uh maybe soft power or in, in, uh, attitude uh, or part of its like global posture or uh, outward facing posture right now it's 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 and, and inward i mean it's big on promotion promoting uh, uh, chinese uh, language and literature uh, culture uh, nationally too um but i don't know if they're pushing for to become a requirement or not in in african schools receiving aid um that's a really great question um this, the first question i think is trickier for me to answer right like i feel almost I think that parts of parts of the relationship between uh, uh, China and different African countries fit into that, like well, like natural kind of uh, flow of capitalism, right? There, right? there are natural resources, resource extraction, um, but also. I don't know. I I look at I I primarily look at China's engagement with Africa as a political. Uh, Uh, engage as a political tool more than an economic tool, Um, even if there's economic exploitation happening, or even if there's economic, if it's not exploitation, if there's economic uh, agreements happening, trade. Yeah, I I think that, you know, for my interests from a China, kind of, uh, from a uh, Sinocentric perspective, uh, the, the relationship and the way that the African uh, relationship with the way that China's relationship with Africa is described and portrayed in Chinese media seems very much to reinforce uh, Chinese domestic political agendas. So because of the way I look at this topic, um, especially the way I look at it cont- in, in the contemporary and, and historical as um, kind of representations of this uh, relationship in Chinese media, as I'm I'm hesitant to put a label on it. The other reason I'm hesitant to put a label on it is I imagine, um, actually, I know it's different in different countries. China's relationship with different African countries is different. Um, uh, China uh, uh, has a history of uh, uh, doing multilateral things, but also bilateral relationships are are important to Chinese foreign policy historically. And so each country is gonna have a different relationship with China. and, And as, An outsider, I I have a hard time labeling it precisely. I think that I would want to answer that question with a more... um, I would want to have a better understanding of what the independent, what the different uh, African countries how they consider this relationship, right? I think that in order for, and, and for that, I would actually pass it back again to, to, to Professor Parrot because he probably has a better idea of what's actually going on on the uh, African continent as far as public opinion goes um, than I do.
0: Let me actually. Yeah. So uh, I mean, just to, oh. you know, hold on second. Let me just ask right. actually because this this relates to another question that was that was posed and and so it's going to expand based on, on the question that Patrick threw your way, but. Um, we, we had a question come in that uh, that asks, and of, 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 I'll read it in full because I, I, I think that'll kind of builds off of what Patrick was just saying. Um, what do you see uh, as uh, what do you see as the role regime type in the African states' relationship with China? Western media often uses terms like, and I quote here, "rogue donor" or "quote propping up dictators" uh, to describe Chinese engagement with Africa. Is this true? What is the role of African agency in this relationship, and what makes for an African willing partner? So if I can throw that on top of uh, of the question. yeah, so so
2: I'll, right I'll say two things and and kind of lead into that. So um one, I, I think Patrick is right about that political relationship there's there's a lot of economic ties and it's supposed to be no strings attached this aid. But what we do see is there's a lot of political results for China that that come through that, and I didn't have a chance to mention it, but the Taiwan example is an interesting one in the sense that there used to be a number of countries that recognized Taiwan and Africa, and that number has been dwindling, despite the fact there's no you know, there's no force, there's no cajoled um, reasons for these countries not to recognize Taiwan, except China wants it that way. And I think we're down to only Eswatini um, being the, the lone um, rec- country that recognizes Taiwan. And that's directly a result of these relationships between China and Africa, but uh, in terms of the individual relationships, again, it's kind of country to country. And it's one of the reasons I focused in on Zambia. I have seen neo-colonial and neo-imperial thrown around in discussions within Zambia about, about China's role there. Um, it's a little bit more pl- positive in, in places like Ethiopia where there is um, that kind of investment in small industry and that, that part, uh, the park port city model. Or the Park City Port model has has been kind of modeled there, right? Um, but at the same time, I think one of the reasons why you have these countries operating is because China is willing to invest fairly heavily and build strong relationships with countries with questionable, um, you know, democratic histories, or or with countries with kind of strongman leaders. And while that's not a prerequisite, China works just as well with democracies as it does with some of these strongman types. I think China going in and saying, hey, we're not concerned about human rights, we're not concerned whether you're a democratic government, we don't attach political strings in that sense to our aid has been really attractive to some of these countries like Zimbabwe, for instance, which has had a really troubled relationship with the United States, but at various points has had a a relatively good relationship with China and the same things happening in Ethiopia, right? We're seeing Ethiopia crack down a lot on protest we're seeing these real problematic developments within the country at large, and their critiques coming from the United States. China is pretty quiet on all this as long as it doesn't kind of interfere with the investments that they're making in those countries. And I think that's a real advantage to some African states, even even the democratic ones. You see the U.S. as heavy-handed on issues related to human rights, on issues related um, to pollution and, and things like this, as they as they try to kind of you know build their countries up and you know lead their countries. They, they see the United States as hypocritical in a lot of ways. And so China can be an attractive partner. And I mean, if I can just quickly
1: add on top of that, this has been a consistent, I mean, this idea of like non-interference in, in internal domestic affairs of other countries and like defense of national sovereignty uh, has been a fairly consistent, even as it's pushing its revolutionary paradigm during, you know, the, the Mao years, this non-interference in domestic affairs is really a, 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 a foundational pillar of, of I think, uh, Chinese foreign policy rhetoric, and in the recent, it, as tensions go back up with, uh, over the, across the Taiwan Strait, which is a domestic issue for the PRC, they, you know, the way it's portrayed in Chinese press is a domestic issue, we see more and more, you um, you know, when when China's talking about uh, when 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 the PRC representative at the United Nations or when Xi Jinping is giving a speech about uh, China's international posture, a lot of it is, hey, we don't come in and tell you what needs to be done. Everyone has the right to self-determination, right? Like, every go- the language they use is very much, yeah, everyone has the right to, like, determine their own political. We're not going to interfere. We just want to find mutually beneficial um. Arrangements, right? Like that's 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 the that's the 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 basically standard, or provide you with the aid and technology, especially during the COVID, um, provide you with aid and technology that you're not able to get elsewhere. Um, we're doing this for, we're not doing this to 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 inter. We're going to let you be you, right? Um, this and that's that's been a pretty. I that I think in my reading and I'm uh, that's been a pretty consistent um, and it serves both foreign affairs or, uh, you know, and domestic very much is is relevant to
2: domestic politics of of China. And let me add one thing real, just real quick on that. Patrick's absolutely right. That has been central, but there always have been those kind of decisions about how close we make the relationship based off some of these conditions. So in the 60s and 70s, China was allied with certain countries or certain groups over others, depending on whether they were allied with the Soviet Union, right? Same thing's true with Taiwan. So I think it's one of those things. The United States is concerned about democracy and human rights, and China's not. China's concerned about things that are more direct to its its competitions at that moment, right? The Soviet Union, that model of communism versus Maoism, and, and Taiwan. So there are things, but it's not human rights. It's not democracy on that stuff that the United States is concerned about. China's very hands off and says, you know, you kind of do what you want. We're going to work together no matter what, but they will sever relationships, for instance, if you supported the Soviet Union in the 1970s. I
0: think we have time for one more question. Uh, and let me throw this one because uh, it's directed actually to uh, to you, Joe. Um, it's it's a question about how do you see China's engagement evolving uh, as uh, with, with Biden and the G7 countries? uh as they kind of flesh out their their kind of future plans um and and the person writes that when they worked at the carnegie endowment for international peace many scholars speculated sort of two directions of development either increased cooperation or further decoupling uh from superpowers what are your thoughts on on kind of what the future holds in this
2: regard so so patrick can hopefully weigh in on that as well i mean at the end i don't quite know right you know historians are not great prognosticators Uh, but, but the reality is that I think it depends on a couple of issues. I think it depends one on on how well we can kind of uh, control that relationship and control some of the terms of debate. And, and that's exactly what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was trying to do, right? Was, was kind of trap China in a, in a kind of normative sphere that would force them to move in either more cooperative directions or completely break and, and isolate themselves. And so the, the partial collapse of the TPP or at least the United States not being involved, I think kind of hurt our attempts to cajole China into a more cooperative relationship. I also think it depends, you know, how much room they get to move because the United States, you know, coronavirus for instance, was very weak on talking about helping parts of the global south on on helping Africa, on helping Latin America. But China was very happy to move into that, um, to move into the, you know, kind of um, vacuum and fill a role there, even though its vaccine was nowhere near effective as the one developed in the United States. And so I think it depends in many ways, how much room the United States the states gives China to be independent. And there's a certain point where I think it's going to grow large enough that that cooperation with the United States doesn't necessarily pay the dividends that it used to. And, and I think it's also a little bit maybe about the United States finding ways to, I don't want to say empower, but, but there, I think there is a, an emerging, and maybe Patrick can speak to this, there's an emerging frustration with China about some of the ways its government is going about things. And so I think there's a real question. Does China continue to clamp down on that? Does it continue to centralize power? Or are there ways that we see things loosening a little bit again, like they did in the 1980s and to a certain extent the 1990s? And if that's the case, there might be opportunities for the United States to encourage cooperation or for the Chinese, for that matter, to reach out. But, but I think that's kind of where it depends. Does the United States kind of seed some of its leadership and not just the United States, but Europe as well. Do they seed the leadership um, of the international community during these moments of crisis and China takes hold of that and does China continue to go in the direction it's been going with Xi Jinping for about the last decade?
0: Patrick, do you have two sentences you wanna finish up with to add to that? You know what? No, I, I'm, I'm good with I'm good with what Professor Barrett said. I don't think I've got uh, too much more to add. Well, that is just perfect. Um, thank you all. amazingly, we have, uh, as always, sped through uh, the hour that we have together. Uh, thank you uh, thank you all so very much for joining us today, and my apologies for the questions we didn't quite get to. Uh, there's never quite enough time, I find, it, uh, in this life for all the things we'd like to talk about, but thank you so much for coming uh, and for your very thoughtful questions. I'm really grateful to, um, to Joe Parrot and Patrick Nash for sharing their expertise and passion for history with us today, and please join me Uh, and giving them a very virtual round of applause uh, to say thank you for their time and expertise. Uh, I'd also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences at Ohio State, especially Clara Davison, Jade Lack, and Maddie Kurma, Uh, also the History Department, the Harvey Goldberg Center, the Cleo Society, the Bexitt Public Library, the East Asian Studies Center, uh, and the magazine Origins Current Events and Historical Perspective for their sponsorship of the event today. Uh, And once again, thank you, our audience, uh, for your excellent questions and your ongoing connection to Ohio State. Stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.